to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. This is Peter Lewis. A warm welcome to my podcast Money Talk for Thursday the 28th of September. Thank you for listening to the show and supporting independent broadcasting and making Money Talk one of the most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, Profits earned by Chinese industrial firms fell by 11.7% from a year earlier in the first eight months of 2023, amid weak demand at home and abroad and ongoing margin pressures. The decrease followed a 15.5% slump in the prior period, with profits declining in both state-owned firms and the private sector. China's August industrial profit, though, jumped by 17.2% year-on-year. That's the first increase this year, and it helped narrow the year-to-date year-on-year decline. Reuters reported Wednesday that a major group of offshore creditors of China Evergrande Group is planning to join a court petition to liquidate the cash-strapped developer if it doesn't submit a new debt restructuring plan by next month. The creditor group holds a large portion of Evergrande offshore bonds, and if it decides to join, it would add more weight to the petition filed against the developer by an investor in a Hong Kong court, which is set for a hearing on October 30th. Bank of Japan policymakers agreed on the need to maintain ultra-loose monetary policy, but were divided on how soon the central bank could end negative interest rates, minutes of its July meeting showed on Wednesday. This was in light of inflation hitting 15 straight months above the Bank of Japan's 2% target. US stocks are on track for their worst month of the year, as the Fed's higher for longer interest rates message sends shares and government bonds tumbling on Wall Street. The S&P 500 index has fallen 5.2% in September, dragging it towards its first quarterly loss in 12 months. And the broad-based index is now down almost 300 points. That's 6.4% since July the 26th, when the, Fed ra- uh, when the Fed last raised rates and said they were no longer expecting a recession. On today's programme, my guests are Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and William Marr, Chief Investment Officer at Grow Investment Group. And with a view from Singapore is Jeff Howry, Market Strategist at the Singapore Exchange. If you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. You can send me any questions or comments there. On Wall Street, the benchmark S&P 500 index made fractional gains Wednesday after hitting a three-month low in the previous session. The index edged up under one point to close at 4,275. The Dow gave up gains of 113 points from earlier in the session to close 69 points lower. That's about 0.2% at 33,550. The Nasdaq Composite added 0.2% to end the session at 13,093. Energy stocks rose on higher oil prices, with majors ConocoPhillips up 3% and ExxonMobil rising 3.3%. And oil prices surged to a fresh 10-month high on Wednesday, approaching $100 a barrel, as lower-than-expected U.S. stockpiles added to concerns about the impact of tighter global supplies of crude. Brent crude climbed as high as $97.06 a barrel, that's its highest intraday level since November, before pairing the gains slightly to settle 2.8% higher at $96.55 a barrel. 
Yields on the benchmark 10-year Treasury rose six basis points to 4.61% on Wednesday. That's the highest since 2007. And yields on the 30-year note advanced three basis points to 4.72%. That's the highest level since 2011. The US dollar rose half a percent against a basket of six peer currencies, hitting a fresh 10-month high. And the dollar scaled multi-month highs against the euro, sterling and the yen. The offshore yuan, though, strengthened 0.2% to 7.32 renminbi per dollar, as the People's Bank of China said it would resolutely prevent currency overshooting risks and keep the yuan basically stable at reasonable balance levels. Shares in Hong Kong snapped two days of losses and climbed off a 10-month low. The Hang Seng Index added 145 points, or 0.8%, to 17,612. For the month of September so far, though, the index is down more than 4%. The tech index rebounded 0.4%, but is down 8.3% month-to-date. Alibaba jumped 0.7% on news that its logistics arm, Kanyo Smart Network, has filed for an IPO in Hong Kong. And the Shanghai Composites, that rose 0.2% to 3,107, and the index there is marginally lower month-to-date. does look like, though, the Hang Seng is going to slide a little bit more this morning. Futures markets projecting an open of about 17,560. That's about 50 points lower, or a third of a percent lower on the day. You can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. It's almost the end of the week, coming up to a long weekend and the Golden Week holiday, of course, in uh, in China. Let's welcome our guests. We have with us Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Morning, Andrew. Morning. And also with us is William Ma, who is Chief Investment Officer at Grow Investment Group. Good morning to you, William. Good morning, Peter. Let's start with the markets. Uh, we'll start with the US. US stocks on track for their worst month of the year as the Fed's higher for longer interest rates message sends shares and government bonds tumbling on Wall Street and a looming government shutdown also weighed on sentiment. The S&P 500 is down 5.2% in September, dragging it towards its first quarterly loss in 12 months. And the index has fallen 300 points since July the 26th, that's over 6%, when the Fed raised rates and said they were no longer expecting a recession. Um, Andrew, you've been saying all along that rates are going to be higher for longer, but uh, the markets haven't really believed it, but I think they're starting to believe it now, aren't they? Well, thank you very much for saying that, Peter. Actually, I take zero pride because me and 9,528 million other yeah, <laughs> observers were saying the same. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was absolutely stunningly obvious. You know, either you take what the Fed tells you or you don't. Okay, my concern, I keep re- emphasizing that, is that uh, we are wasting an enormous amount of time uh, trying to, in a sense, guess when the Fed will be happy with the inflation trends and therefore it will stop increasing interest rates can we please forget about it and simply concentrate on areas where we can invest where interest rates are of no importance uh and uh, i you know i have a, a sector which is my favorite which is interest rate proof it's defense and the other part that i started wondering a little bit is whether a number of defense uh, i'll try that again a number of ai or technology uh, mini sectors or subsectors also can actually shrug off 
whether the Fed is going to increase again or whether it's going to be stable or not, and simply concentrate on just news. Mm. And then there are other areas, again, on the tech side, like Google and Amazon, where they are being absolutely pursued about uh, monopolistic practices. And that is not something uh, easily sluggable. So we've got actual events to worry about as opposed to whether the Fed will or will not increase. Let's forget about it. You know, the interest rates are going to be high for quite a while yet. For quite a while, how much? Let's not waste too much time on that. It won't make any difference. William, from, from your perspective, from an investment uh, perspective, I mean, the markets have been fighting the Fed pretty well all year, haven't they? But are, are you uh, sort of preparing for a long period of, of high interest rates? Yes, I have a couple of angles. I think one from the inflation side, I was in the um, States about two weeks ago and things are super expensive, you know, Peter and Andrew and the tips and everything. I can feel the inflation, you know, pressure if you like. And um, our analysis is it will remain a little bit sticky for a while uh, when we talk to the Chinese manufacturer because we are seeing some of them are starting increasing price, you know. And secondly, some of the goods are actually export to Vietnam and other countries and then we export to the States, mm. which kind of like increase, you know, the cost of inflation. So if oil price is not going down, um, this type of manufacturing goods are increasing price and service. Uh, I mean, the staff is not going to uh, reducing salary. I don't see a reason why inflation would go down and that create one more reason for the Fed to make the interest rate, you know, high for longer. And the second point is from an investment sentiment or investment perspective, when we talk to our Chinese client who have a U.S. dollar exposure, some of them are buying, you know, the fly, high fly equity, you know, like Apple and Amazon and Google, but a big part of the portion of their money is actually in bank saving. So uh, given the volatility, if the interest rate is higher for longer, I think the investment appetite uh, for Chinese investors will remain on the um, kind of like safety deposit, you know, mm. if you like. Because you can get uh, two-year yields uh, over 5% now. I mean, that's worth locking in, isn't it? It's a risk-free rate um, on, on U.S. Treasuries. It's, uh, it, it's not too bad. We, we've seen two types of, you know, strategy. The one type is quite common. You go to different banks trying to arbitrage, you know, three months, six months, and 12 months interest rate. Some of the private bank actually is offering like 5.88, you know, uh, for a six to 12 months kind of like safety deposit. The other strategy, we've seen some bank and client uh, investing in a note, you know, with like like a two years lockup to five years lockup, uh, principal protected, and there is some yield upside with some lock-in function. So I think uh, investors in general are trying to arbitrage or take the safer way, if you like. Andrew, you mentioned sectors that are hopefully immune from this period of higher for longer um, interest rates, a period that could go on for a long time if we if we listen to the Fed. I presume within that, you've also got to look very carefully at individual companies, haven't you, and how much debt they have on their balance sheet and when that debt needs to be refinanced, because the days of being able to borrow at close to zero are long gone. They're going to have to refinance at much higher rates. Absolutely, Peter. Uh, as an in inverted commas, an investment advisor, God help you. Okay, you know what they say, how to make a small fortune <laughs> with Andrew Freire. He says, you start with a big one. Okay. <laughs> uh, it is much, much more difficult to uh, advise on individual companies because this is incredibly labor intensive yep. as opposed to doing a blah, blah on, uh, on, on specific countries. Okay, so I'm afraid I have chosen 
the more difficult path, and that is to look at sectors and within sectors look at individual companies to the extent that I can do it uh, through compliance and particularly on a public platform like yours, number one. Number two is as opposed to taking the relatively easier way of doing a blah blah, which has zero value added for my clients. I want to tell them that in the United States, in interest rates are going to continue to be high for perhaps another year. And and what? And where are you going to invest? Well, that's, that's a tricky part. So I prefer mm-hmm. to ignore about that. Mm-hmm. Okay, ignore and, and stick to that. So yes, you're absolutely right. And even in my favorite sector, which is defense, when I look at uh, something like more than 30 companies in the United States, more than 30 companies in Asia, they are widely different. And also their performance has mm-hmm. also been very, very different indeed. In Europe, for example, there are some absolutely high sky performances, okay, driven at the back of, uh, of the w- war in Ukraine. And in Asia, uh, there are some, particularly in Japan, that are completely flat. Mm-hmm. So I would tell my clients, mm-hmm. buy anything that has the word D in front of them. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, it is like that. But at least I get rid of the angst. Okay, of saying, will they go, won't they go, interest rates up, interest rates down. Okay, the sector looks very good, and within that, it's relatively easier to find some companies. I hope I'm answering it directly. Okay, yes, it is easy and in inverted commas cheap to go for countries or regions as opposed to go for sectors and specific companies within the sectors. Okay, I'm going to ask you about specific countries in a moment. But but William, let me get your thoughts on this because Treasury yields <laughs> now, the 10-year Treasury yield at the highest level in 15 years, I, I don't think investors have fully realised the significance of this yet. Yes, and um, I would like to add a bit on the strategy side, you know, with high interest rate, I've seen, you know, um, some uh, clients investor trying to invest in the private debt, you know, asset class, and with high interest rate and the potential lockup, and some of them are actually lending to the uh, so-called technology company at high interest rate. Um, to me, I think it's, uh, it's not the best, you know, strategy if you want to lock in, you know, stable return, given potentially if, you know, um, we are talking about recession, high interest rate, maybe the the ability for those companies to pay back debt would be uh, kind of like getting more difficult while you are not seeing that on a month-on-month NAV basis. But after two, three-year lockup, you will find out your portfolio might not performing as, you know, mid-teens as some of the funds are suggesting. So I think that is exactly what Andrew mentioned, you know, besides high interest rate on the treasury yield, we are trying to go into the exact asset class and what people are selling and, and buying. Uh, in order, you know, for, for safety, we prefer both in China and in global, maybe another type of strategy like convertible bond to kind of like capture this kind of like uh, a downside with a yield, but upside with an equity, equity you know, uh, a call option on the upside. Right. That's that's a, a pretty good um, asset class in this type of environment, isn't it? Because as you say, you get the, the yield not as high as on a fixed income, a fixed income bond, but you do get uh, the equity kicker. Exactly. In particular, in China, if I might add a little bit, Peter, is um, the convertible bond space in China is getting huge in terms of volume. Actually, we are talking about they're close to a quarter of the market turnover of the equity market. And secondly, um, uh, there is uh, limit up, limit down in convertible bond, you know, 30% up, 30% down. But in equity, it's 10% up and 10% down per day. 
which makes some of the retail investor trying to trade a convertible bond as a proxy in trading the stocks. And by applying, you know, a Black Scholes model, actually you can, uh, uh, relatively speaking, uh, strip out the co-option pricing, you know, of the convertible bond, which makes, you know, some of the more advanced, you know, fund manager trying to uh, gauge what is the true value of the convertible bond. And a uh, matter of, you know, data point year today, you know, Hong Kong uh, market was down 10% and Asia is down 4.5, right? Mm. Convertible bond strategy is up close to 8%. So I think despite all the macro, you know, in China and global and the high interest rate, if you pick the right sector, like Andrew mentioned, the D, or you pick the right uh, asset class, I would say CB, <laughs> I think that would be something, you know, you need to implement in your portfolio. Okay, so convertible bonds. William, you are you are a much better man than I am. When I hear I'll take convertibles and strip out the op- optionality, my eyes glaze, beads of sweat appear on my brow. Leave me out of that, please. <laughs> Nevertheless, it's, this is a good time. I, I used to be a convertible bond trader a long, long time ago in my early days in Japan. So, uh, yeah, so it, it sounds like a, a good strategy to me, William. What, what about specific countries, Andrew, in Asia? Uh, where would you look at in this higher for longer environment and, and where would you avoid? Strangely enough, on pure macro basis, okay, and also looking at, uh, at the commodity prices, <clears throat> I'll clear my throat, Indonesia doesn't look bad at all. I am much more cautious on India, although India in terms of index performance has been one of the very few green spots on my Bloomberg screen. Mm. Okay, and then uh, the rest of them, I, I have I have question marks. In other words, there isn't a huge amount of things that I would I would go through. I had had great hopes of Thailand clearing out the election period, but unfortunately, this didn't really make any any significant differences. So, looking at in inverted commas Asia. Okay, I will find it very difficult to say Asia as opposed to individual countries. Japan became temporarily a favorite place, but uh, now, given that the question mark continues to raise for how long are they going to keep uh, uh, near zero interest rates? And the answer is it's a beautiful converse, in fact, of the Fed. Mm. They're saying, (laughs) we're going to keep them down as long as it takes. And what as long as it takes mean? It might mean another year or so. Mm. Okay, despite the fact that for 15 15 months, inflation in Japan has been increasing, you know, the men for Mars will go absolutely bananas in saying, hang on a minute, these guys, they want more inflation. They just got it for 15 months. What's their problem? The answer is they don't really believe that this is going to stay like that. (laughs) And hence, uniquely, they still have negative interest rates. I adore that, Peter. When people you know, central banks have gone through a period of increasing interest rates, I say, hello, no, they haven't. I don't know how long that's going to be able to last for, I have to say, because the, the yen is being held hostage by that, isn't it? And uh, I mean, William, that's the other thing we've got to look at at the moment, isn't it, from an investment perspective, what this is doing to the dollar. Um, the dollar is just surging um, against all the major uh, currencies. We're now at a 10-month high for the, the US dollar index, particularly the yen, but it's, it's given a big boost to uh, the Japanese economy and made the market look investable again. But what are your thoughts on the currency? Yes, I think um, the dollar will continue to strengthen. You know, this is our central thesis. So for our clients' global portfolio, a good part is in the US dollar asset. 
And besides that, we are also having gold and uh, oil, you know, commodity as the portfolio to play part of the global uh, inflation as well as the hedge. Um, we are not in uh, yen or Indian. I think um, one point I would like to add on India and Japan is um, I understand some of the capital is um, leaving China and look for exposure in Asia. Uh, from my 20 years of experience, I think India and Japan are good and important market, but I prefer to go there because we like the country, not because we don't like other country. Otherwise, you know, it would not be a kind of like a longer term view. And secondly, in India, my experience is whether to hedge the rupee or not makes a big difference in your overall investment return, you know, if you're investing in equity market. Um, for non-China in the region, I would say Australia has been a very stable country. Um, some of the non-commodity related business, they are actually doing very good. Some of the healthcare, you know, they are doing export. I would say those are also defensive, uh, stable sector or countries that we can look besides Japan and India. Okay. And Andrew, the other thing, of course, we've got to watch oil prices heading towards $100 a barrel, aren't they? They Brent crude oil rose above uh, $96 a barrel earlier on today. It has fallen back um, a little bit. Um, looks like... Um, energy uh, oil supplies are remaining pretty tight and that's sort of overwhelming the concerns about uh, slowing um, slowing demand but of course this is inflationary isn't it yeah well you know peter i have a very cautionary view as far as oil prices is concerned because if you look at the uses oil is not used no not used to make electricity full stop okay mm. so please let's leave energy as in uh, as in electricity prices aside from the impact of that of, of oil prices. Nearly 20 to 25% of the uses of oil is for transport. And if you look at transport, ta-da, you look at the United States. So there are much more, all this is much more likely to affect the states rather than affect, let's say, Philippines, okay? India, however, does have a very sensitive area as far as uh, oil is concerned, because certain aspects of the uses of oil products, for example, Okay, uh, and in particular gas for cooking, it's still a very, very important component of the inflationary stroke sector in terms of indexes. So when I look at oil prices, I would say if they're going up, bad news for the states straight away. I concentrate on that as opposed to saying this is going to be bad news for everybody else. Gas prices also is different. Very, very different because they are not being controlled in the same way that oil prices are. And to the best of my knowledge, I haven't seen yet any attempt to restrict production of natural gas. William, what's what's the impact on China of these surging um, oil prices? Well, definitely. It's causing inflation everywhere, including in China, right? Although, you know, part of the um, oil price and raw material is kind of like being subsidized, you know, by the government. And um, I think important part is it will increase volatility globally, you know, if, you know, oil keep going up and then as you can see, the U.S. market is going down and it's not helping the China Asia's market. I think the sort of poor sentiment in Asia's and in Asia, part of it is driven by, you know, the uh, U.S. market volatility as well. So I think keep increasing oil price is not good for equity market. But from a portfolio perspective, I think we, we do have some exposure, you know, to hedge that type of volatility. 
Okay. Well, look, sticking with the theme of of higher for longer, that's where uh, interest rates look to remain. That's obviously, as we've been discussing, having an impact on the US dollar, on treasury yields, on oil. Um, What about the local markets? What does this mean for the local markets? Because Hong Kong, the Hang Seng Index, is the worst performing uh, out of the major markets uh, this month. Uh, The Shanghai Composite is, is flat. It's down actually just a small amount, but hasn't been um, a good month, has it, for for local markets? Well, uh, yes, unfortunately, this is again uh, taking candy from a baby. The reason why Hans Heng (laughs) can't perform well is is whilst American interest rates remain (laughs) historically high, how could it be? You know, our rates are connected to American rates, to, to US rates. So whatever else is happening, and of course it doesn't help if the property sector in China continues to be to be doing poorly, it, it is significant that the major uh, suing activities concerning Evergrande is taking place in Hong Kong, because that's that's an overseas place where where all this is happening. And of course, this is part of the index. Let's not forget that we can we can wriggle out of that. So that's going to be poor performance, okay, because China is not doing well, and poor performance because interest rates remain high. It's, it's it is it is obvious, and again, I find it very little value added. I can turn turn to that. Never mind that we're open in uh, uh, night markets in uh, in one side. <laughs> this is this 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 is all <laughs> and part of the of the effort. But that's not going to go, going to drive. I don't think the poor government thinks that by doing that is going to drive the hand sang up. Okay, it is simply a matter of uh, giving you a, a feel good factor. Okay, William. What are you, what's your outlook for uh, for the mainland markets and Hong Kong markets? Yeah, I think um, in terms of the Hong Kong market um, going forward, we expect the correlation to China Asia's will be higher, given a lot of global investor has sell the exposure, you know, in Hong Kong already. And second point, I think we should look ahead, not behind. Uh, we believe, you know, the bottom is there already. Uh, although when it would coming back is a function of different, you know, uh, um, kind of like indicators, you know, both fundamental and technical. But I think um, the current poor sentiment is more than, you know, fundamental. Uh, having said that, you know, I'd like to update a bit on the recent uh, observation in my trips. You know, I visited five provinces in China in the last two weeks. You know, now I'm in Hangzhou seeing the business owner. Uh, we are seeing some so-called green shoots, you know, in the manufacturing side. Um, it has to be sector and company specific, but I think those are indicators. For example, uh, electric vehicle, you know, charging manufacturer, uh, one of the largest bike um, exporter to Europe, and also an energy storage, you know, tech company. The owner is telling me that year uh, today their earnings is up 30 to 50%. So I think those are kind of like small green shoots you're seeing. I think that is reflected in yesterday, manufacturing profit jumping as well. And second point is um, some sell side and uh, reporting that uh, some of the equipment maker like forklift, you know, which is the equipment that you use to, you know, uh, for, for the logistic company, right? They are seeing, you know, uh, all the increase in August as well, which means, you know, some of the company are spending capex. I think as a investment manager, we are all always talking about risk and reward. If these type of business owners starting to buying and see fundamental, you know, improvement, potentially that would uh, body out for a market rebound down the road. But at the same time, we believe convertible bond, this type of strategy is better that you get paid to wait. We're not suggesting that you go all in in the market right now. We, we did have some. Sorry, Andrew. Okay. Andrew, no, carry on. Yeah, that's sweet music in my ear, William, because uh, 
I, I, I do very simple things. For example, I looked, I simply opened up my Bloomberg and I looked at the first 12 indexes in China. I didn't even bother mm. to, to randomize them. Okay, 12. Seven of them still contains minuses. <laughs> Some of them very Which large is minuses. Okay, over yeah. the, first, the first three months of the year. The first three months now. Correction, the last three months. So in other words, crudely, if somebody says, how is China doing? I said, I look at 12 basic indexes. Okay, what imports, exports, investment, uh, PI indexes, the, the, usual, the usual suspect. And of those, seven out of 12, the first, the last three numbers I have contains minuses. So in other words, more than half of my indexes are still pointing downwards. Now, some of the minuses are smaller. Okay, but I'm afraid this doesn't help me. If, let's say, my salary is coming down and it's coming down at smaller levels, that doesn't comfort me at all. I want my salary to be going up. Not be, it's not good news that the negatives are smaller. I won't see them positive. And hence, you come in and tell me that you're looking at green suits in terms of individual places, that's much better. That's a much nice, possibly an easier thing to say than somebody awkward like me telling you, William, really, China is doing better. I've just done my, my basic choice and uh, more than half of the indexes are pointing downwards. And you're telling me China is doing better. And you're saying, yes, on a sectoral basis, this is quite important. Can you please forget for the time being the macro? Okay, the macro doesn't look good. Yeah, I think that is why we have a job, right, Andrew? If we are all, you know, <laughs> using corn and looking at the macro, we'll behind the scene and people will kind of like hit their head. Oh, gee, you know why I didn't, you know, put on some exposure, you know, when the sentiment is back. And uh, one example, we are hosting one of the largest family office in uh, Europe to visit China last week. And uh, we bring them to see some domestic big family office as well. I asked the European family office, they're managing 10 billion plus. Their current exposure is 5%. And in China, they come to look for opportunity in China to increase to 10%. I said, why? You know, you are the contrarian. They said exactly the message that I'm trying to send over. So I think uh, we all agree that the macro is bad, the, the data is not good. But at the same time, there are different cycles. And uh, I think it's uh, seeing green shoots, at least it's a pointing out kind of signs. And it's a pity I can't invest in Chinese defense sector. I would have loved that, but it is not possible, okay, because that's uh, their spending. It is one of the biggest spenders on defense in Asia. Okay, but following closely by, actually, marching hand by hand with India. India is a huge spender on defense, and so is Australia. Well, what, did, the, yeah, what, what did you make of the industrial profits numbers that, that came out? The, the, the headline number was um, industrial profits at Chinese firms fell 11.7% uh, in the first eight months of the year from the same period last year. But... The good news, the market seems to have taken this as good news because the decline is slowing. It was 15.5% uh, in the previous period, but also month on month, August's industrial profits jumped by over 17%. That's the first increase uh, this year, and that helped narrow the year-to-date's uh, decline. What do you make of that? Yeah, uh, two things, actually. Uh, I'm afraid part of it is ignorance. I would like to know the weighting of the individual in, individual subsectors within industrial profits. Okay. And the second point is, is I'd love to know what caused the month-on-month -month big jump. Was it something very specific? Was it an individual set of companies that did that? Because otherwise, if I was to take a deep breath, and as you say, I look over either the 12th or the 18th month period with continuous declines, I will say, yeah, that's good news, but it's it's always the equivalent of saying I'm helping my clients to make smaller losses. Sorry, that's not what I'm paid. 
Okay. <laughs> In other words, I'm paid for them to be bigger positive losses. I mean, big positive gains. And here what we're saying is good, good news. Okay. Things continue to be negative, but they are negative at a smaller rate. Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's see how that goes. In other words, that, that doesn't make me look forward to those things. So that's my answer to you. Part of it is ignorance. Okay. Uh, see, since I'm not aware of, of the individual um, sectoral weights on industrial profits. And the other part is I'd like to know what was the month on month increase. That, as you say, make the whole other look, the whole other overall trend look a little bit better. William, what do you make of it? Do you see the glass as being half full or half empty there? Well, I think we shouldn't look too much on a month-on-month basis. Um, the jump is big. And as you can see, you know, from the news and analysis, there are, you know, uh, electricity, you know, and some of the other components that make it improving. To me, I think um, the more important part is actually the corporate earnings and as well as the real what the business owner are doing. I think early signs, again, it would be the CapEx, capital expenditure, you know, kind of light spending, and also the retail people. And Andrew and Peter, I would like to invite you to Changsha, which is we opening up an office like two weeks ago. And interesting enough, when the Hong Kong government trying to encourage people to spend in the evening, and Peter, you would notice after nine, o'clock not many people eat outside right mm-hmm. in changsha which is one of the most dynamic and young city in china uh, my colleagues went to get a supper get a food in the 2 a.m and uh, in a barbecue place they need to wait for 30 minutes i said you know jesus christ you know so many countries and places one economy that you need to wait 30 minutes for a barbecue at 2 a.m and you can go and google it look at the video it's not a small number uh, all I'm trying to say is we shouldn't generalize the whole country or the whole market. There are pockets of opportunity as a fund manager. I think our job is to make money, as Andrew mentioned, not trying to kind of like thinking about the overall big picture, but losing the opportunity. William, I will be delighted to accept your invitation, but I want one guarantee. Are there crabs nicely? Yeah, okay. Otherwise, <laughs> otherwise <I'm not> <laughs> yeah, no crabs. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> William, one final thing I wanted to ask to ask you about. We're hearing uh, sort of rumours that Beijing may relax uh, the rules on sales uh, by property developers. Because, as you know, there's all these restrictions on prices that property developers mm. can sell new homes at. There's talk about those restrictions being eased or being lifted, which will uh, presumably mm. help us discover what is the true price, true value of, of, these, uh, mm. of these homes. But what, what, what are you hearing about mm. that? Yeah, on the ground, when we talk to the developers and other fund manager, we believe it's possible. You know, the direction is actually to keep uh, stabilizing or relaxing the overall housing rule, if you like. Uh, but I think the housing sector policy alone is not enough to uh, promote kind of like the confidence for the investors as well as business owner. That's why exactly we are seeing different directions of uh, little policy here and there. We are not expecting a bazooka type of stimulus. Um, I think this is a good thing. Uh, if everyone is expecting this, it would be a one-off trade, if you like. If we have many different policy, while it's slowly, I believe, you know, the confidence and the market is coming back, you know, slowly. It's not surprised to me to see the year-to-day return gap between U.S. and China and Hong Kong narrow down, you know, uh, towards the end of the year. Because we are now talking about, you know, um, 10, 15% type of light gap, which is not a huge, you know, compared historically. Sometimes it could be as large as 20 to 25%. Okay. Thank you very much, William. Final thoughts from you, um, sort of, Andrew. Obviously, the property sector is still very much in focus, isn't it? And we've got now this Evergrande court hearing in Hong Kong where um, a petition is being made to wind up the company. 
Yeah. Well, I have been concentrating on my my favorite nitpicking, and that is, uh, you know, um, I have complete distrust uh, whenever you are having size of debt divided by earnings or divided by profits. Okay, because size of debt doesn't have a time a time component. Okay, whereas earnings are earnings per period, and I'm in despair to try to find consistent numbers of the cost of servicing debt in China divided by incomes, divided by earnings or divided by profits, because that is the only one that matters. Clearly, this is irrelevant when you come to overgrounded, because whatever that ratio might be, clearly they don't have money to, to, mm -hmm. to fund uh, their, their debt. So whether the ratio is high or low is really completely relevant. But it makes a lot of difference when we look, when one looks at the overall sector and even worse, when what looks at the capacity of China to increase its fiscal deficit, when it comes to look something which is completely irrelevant, and that is fiscal deficit divided by GDP, which tells you absolutely nothing, okay, as opposed to finding out what is the cost of servicing China's uh, national debt divided by income. That's the correct one to do it. And uh, the more and more I dig into that, the more and more it doesn't look at all as grim as it makes makes it out to be, which doesn't make any difference when it comes to individual companies. But I'm I'm a little bit worried of saying it looks absolutely horrible. Okay, the 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 debts between that and income and GDP are too high. Okay, and therefore all is going to go to hell. And uh, I keep nodding my head and I say not when you come to look at servicing. It looks bad, but it doesn't look at all as bad as that. Because these ratios, particularly when you look at Japan, which is still fiscal deficit to GDP is 200%, so is Greece. Okay, exactly. perfectly all right. Because that's not the ratio that matters. The ratio is just how much I need every month to spend out of my income to fund my deficit. Okay, and neither, neither, repay, amortize, and pay interest. And that is not at all the same thing as dividing that by my overall income into the total size of deficit. Apples with bananas. As an ex-professor of 101 economics, I failed the IMF, I failed the World Bank of carrying using this completely meaningless okay, ratio. But anyway, who, okay. am, I to, who, who am I to say that? <laughs> what we do know is the cost of servicing <laughs> this debt is going up for companies and countries all over the world, whatever that ratio um, may be. Thank you both very much for your thoughts and enjoy the Golden Week holiday and the long weekend um, here in Hong Kong. Talk to you again very soon. You heard there Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and William Ma, who is Chief Investment Officer for Grow Investment Group. <laughs> I'm joined now by Jeff Howie, who is market strategist at the Singapore Exchange. Very good morning to you, Jeff. Good morning, Peter. Well, we've been talking this morning about the Fed's message, higher for longer. That's what's going to happen to yeah. interest rates. Markets haven't really bought into that until maybe now, this month. They're starting to get the message, though. Do you get the feeling that investors are starting to believe that the Fed means it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the Fed, well, the Fed will always say it. We know that, but the impact that it has on the rate expectations is always the trick, and and this has happened. So it's not so much what's happening in the U.S. stock market that's impacting Asia; it's the fact that those ten-year yields are near four point six percent this morning. Mm. Uh, dollar index is now closer to one hundred seven than it is one hundred six, and that has a impact of compounding the expectations of the higher rates on the on the equity markets out here the thing is what 
has happened is expectations for the next two Fed meetings. It hasn't really changed that much. It's still around 50-50 or 60-40 that we don't have any change before 2024, but it's that high for longer uh, that has seen, I think, as of this morning, expectations now that we might only have 50 basis points in cuts next year versus a month ago when when markets were pricing in that we'd see rates in the US come off by 100 basis points. And I remember this time last year, Peter, when we were talking, uh, we were actually expecting rate cuts at one of these upcoming uh, Fed meetings on 1st November or 13th deck. So, uh, yeah, things have changed a lot. And the problem is if this really, uh, if you have those longer, longer term, tighter financial conditions by the world's biggest economy, that obviously can constrict global growth. And I think that's what the majority of Asia stock markets have really snapped back into their prices this week. Mm. And um, I still think maybe the market isn't exactly on board with the Fed yet, is it? Because if you look at the futures markets, Fed fund futures markets, they're saying next year, three or four more rate cuts. The Fed itself, you look at the, their dot plot, says two. So they're, they're still not completely in line, are they? There could be more to come in terms of these huge moves we're seeing in bond markets, in the US dollar. Yeah, you know, and, and we haven't really seen huge moves in the equity markets out here. And and there might be reasons for it. But I, I guess the the Singapore stock market does is it is uh you know basically part of the global economy and very much uh interwoven in terms of financial services, digital services, trade and so forth. And we are well off our uh, when you look at the STI, well off our 33.70 highs uh, for the quarter. I think we're near around 3,200 now. We are up a little bit, 1.5% from the lows for the quarter, but still well off the highs. And that's pretty much the story for FTSE ASEAN as well, the all share index out down here. We're trading pretty much at quarterly lows, but still down only around 1.2% on the quarter because it is mixed. In you know, the whole of Southeast Asia stock market out here, it's not in sync. Uh, Jakarta Composite, it began the quarter around 6,700 and then uh, is now trading around 7,000. So it's doing well, but it is obviously maintaining growth momentum. It has manufacturing remaining steady, unlike a lot of the uh, more trade-dependent economies out here. And its FDI uh, with the green minerals and so forth is still undeterred. Um, and also Bursa Malaysia, I guess, is closer to quarterly highs than lows um and and with this week we actually launched a secondary listing of a palm cultivator and processor tsh corp uh here in singapore that stocks up around five ten percent the quarter so it's it's really um for us it's 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 a little bit of a tightrope in terms of whether how how uh sensitive the stocks are to the outlook for global growth on these tighter financial conditions versus those longer-term structural drivers of growth out here in Southeast Asia, which really are threefold at the moment, sustainable infrastructure or pivots towards more sustainable renewable energy solutions or fuel-efficient transportation, uh, the, the, the impact of food value chains, a lot of uh, stocks that are involved in F&B uh, value chains, either upstream or downstream, have been... Uh, be more robust performing than the overall broader market. And then, of course, you've got stocks that are also ramping digitalization to grow their consumer base. So, so that's kind of three themes that are really uh, working across the region that are providing at least some little offset to this week-to-week uh, -week sensitivity that we're seeing on the outlook for global growth. 
In Indonesia, it seems to tick a lot of the boxes, doesn't it? That it, it's a market that maybe can withstand um, higher rates. It, it's uh, promoting those sectors that you mentioned there, and it's had a good IPO pipeline uh, so far this year as well. Is that a market that maybe you would look to in the final quarter to outperform in this era of higher for longer interest rates? Yeah, yeah you know, uh, I mean, not necessarily because... U.S. as we you know as we know it, it contributes around thirty percent of global consumer expenditure and ultimately has a massive cornerstone weight in the global stock market. Sixty percent of the world's stocks are, 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 are come from market capitalization in the U.S. and for that reason, because the U.S. is sixty percent of the world's stock market, it really controls the tide for the stocks, uh, and and thus you do have. Um, you know, you you can only outpace or be defensive to 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 the to uh, to a, a, a finite degree, if you will. So we really do will take our cues. And Asia Pacific, uh, uh, Southeast Asia, will still obviously be hanging on and seeing how the uh, August PCE core deflator comes out Friday evening. But ultimately, yeah, it you've got uh, you. Have, you got more things to look at here, I guess, and and having that lower beta or that uh, longer term structural growth drivers, it is what we need. We've always needed the stock market to be uh, in tandem with what's happening in uh, in terms of developing economics in this region, and of course we have this integration plan across Southeast Asia with the ASEAN uh, uh, supply chains and so forth, and. Uh, when you've got a lot of FDI knocking at the door, that's always a great incentive to keep reducing barriers in terms of customs, transportation costs, so it can really fortify uh, our, uh, our, our place in the world. What do you make of that news yesterday from Indonesia that the government's going to ban uh, social media platforms from, in effect, sort of selling their goods and their merchandise um, on, on a social media platform, which obviously affects TikTok? That's the main. Uh, that seems to be the main loser um, from this. Is, is this a significant move, or is it really something that's just specifically local to Indonesia and, and TikTok? Yeah, well, no. My understanding is. It's it's a little like what we've seen in China as well in terms of e-commerce has such an important pivotal role to play, uh, particularly in Indonesia, with facilitating consumer-driven growth. And you have to ensure that it's appropriately regulated. Scamming and so forth is a is 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 a problem uh, when you've got this as an important. Uh, element or facilitator of growth and you've got to make sure you know we do, uh, households don't lose all, lose all their savings and so forth and I think I think it comes from a regulatory uh, angle in that you really need to ensure consumer rights are protected and that uh, you know platforms that are being used with you know more Malaysian uh, sorry Indonesians having uh, closer to two mobile phones than one mobile phone that they're not actually uh, going to get scammed and lose their money and so forth and you know we've got stocks here in Singapore uh, for instance um, another example is a stock uh, that's pro- uh, producing traditional Chinese medicine based in Tianjin. It's been on the right side of the reform crackdowns in terms of getting the, uh, you know, the non-licensed, the non-regulated uh, products off the shelf, and I think that's, I think, you know, we're going to see a lot more and more of that particular wide field of that tech and, and digitalization has in in terms of uh, the regional economies. You know, you, you've got to also control it.
Okay. Um, what's in, in this in this era of higher for longer? Are there any particular strategies that maybe investors, particularly retail investors, could look at adopting? As an example, we were talking earlier on the show about convertible bonds. They're they're a good sort of hedge in some ways against interest rates being high and, and moving higher, aren't they? But still give you an exposure to the equity market. Are there any particular strategies uh, that maybe yeah. investors should be looking at? So those type of structured certificates, Peter, that have those uh, that those type of bonds attached with 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 some um, derivative strategy, they have been particularly uh, prevalent here with the private banks. And also, when you look at the retail investors, it's more about t-wapping, basically dollar cost averaging, uh, trying to mitigate the risk of maybe going all in lump sum before you do have a little bit of a tumble in the market. So what they do is rather uh, rather than going lump sum now decide to uh, evenly distribute a certain amount of money buying units or shares in the same stock uh, over a 12-month period and therefore take out some of the timing risks. So, so yeah, structured certs are definitely uh, very popular here as well as that uh, dollar-cost averaging approach. Mm. And, of course, the other consequence of uh, of rates being high and bond yields moving up is the US dollar is surging as well. Now, traditionally, that's not good um, for emerging markets. What sort of impact is it, is it having down there? Yeah, it's that's the concern. That's the main that's the main uh, the main drag at the moment, because for the stock market, Peter, it's really it really follows trade. Uh, and uh, China is ASEAN's biggest trading partner. And therefore, we're more sensitive to what's happening in the China equity markets than we are the US equity markets. But the one key asset in the US that really does impact uh, Southeast Asia, because the US is Southeast Asia's biggest investor, is clearly the US dollar. So it does have it does have a drag impact at 100%. You're right. Okay, Jeff. Well, thank you very much for that. Good to hear your thoughts there. That's Jeff Howie, who is the market strategist at the Singapore Exchange. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. Do please take a look at my newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com for more information on developments during the Asian Trading Day. I'll be back tomorrow with the final Money Talk of the week and the quarter before a long weekend here in Hong Kong. I'll be joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities, and Carlos Casanova, Senior Asia Economist at UBP. And with a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, the CEO at Staten Partners. Have a good day. Money Talk.